0: Joining Dean Jeff Frederick for the second installment of a two-part podcast on World War II are faculty from the Department of History, with him and James Heifel, Christoph Hart, and Robert Brown. Now get ready for 30 brave minutes. As we approach the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, we decided to launch our first-ever two-part podcast, given the size and scope and scale of the origins, conflict, and aftermath. Part of the reason for the two-parter was connected to the legacy of the conflict, in part, as a nod to our listeners. We are grateful from the folks from all over the world that have tuned into 30 Brave Minutes, and we thought a topic that was critical to literally the entire world made some sense. And a note about the format is in order. When we launched 30 Brave Minutes in 2016, our goal was making most of our podcasts around 30 minutes, perfect for a commute or a typical exercise session. Part one of the World War II podcast was longer than that, and today's probably will be as well. We will return to the shorter format next month, but with the virus and the isolation and distancing, longer content, or at least content that can be returned to from time to time, made some sense for us for now. Last month, we recorded part one with two of our three guests in the studio. Today, we gather, not in person, but through technology, record our second part. As we record, the world has been turned upside down by the coronavirus. We grieve with those facing uncertainty and whose families have lost loved ones. Barely a corner on the face of the earth has escaped the reach of COVID-19. Those that have not felt the impact know that they may soon. World War II was similar in its sweep and span in that few parts of the globe escaped the impact War Aftermath. In part one of this podcast, we assess the world between the wars, some of the origins and structural issues around key nations, and the early military developments, both in Asia and in Europe. As the war rolled into 1943, the Asian theater featured numerous air and sea battles, an important nod to the development of faster, more reliable, and more devastating fighters, bombers, submarines, massive aircraft carriers, and the like. The fighting on individual islands was horrific, and some contested spaces were rusted away with tremendous casualties. In Europe, the Soviets had stopped the German advances. The British, with radar, guile, and grit, survived the Blitz, and action in North Africa and Italy was intensifying. Battles and campaigns and action at places like Dunkirk, Sicily, Anzio, and hundreds of other places, seared memories into the minds of soldiers, citizens, and observers. Roosevelt and Churchill, together with their generals, pondered and plotted the second front and the invasion force and location that might be needed to make it so. And what would Stalin think of this? As abroad, war brought changes to the home front, though with no direct action in the continental states, American citizens were part of a different kind of war than the French, Germans, Soviets, or Chinese experienced. In America, millions found work at good wages, unions grew, women entered the workforce in large numbers, and some executives left corporations to work for the government as dollar-a-year men. Most of the defense spending went to big corporations, 82% to the nation's top 100 corporations based on size. General Motors alone received about 8% of the total contracts in America. By the end of the war, the Americans had built 300,000 planes, give or take, 88,000 tanks, and about 86,000 warships. And even agriculture picked up as the need for huge quantities of food encouraged increased production and guaranteed a good market price. Overall, per capita income doubled, and even the poor seemed to benefit from the need for labor. There can be no doubt that, from the American perspective, the war effort ended the Depression. Taxes were raised dramatically. Those making over a half a million dollars a year were paying 88% in taxes. Corporate taxes averaged 40%. And those making over $645 a year were assessed a 5% victory tax. War bonds, advertised by Hollywood stars, were purchased by individuals and corporations. It raised a total of $135 billion. The military was spending around $2 billion a month when the U.S. entered the war. By the time the war was over, they had spent $300 billion, more than the combined totals of the previous 150 years of national history. In America, people at home grew victory gardens to support the war effort. Thermostats were turned down to 65 degrees or lower in the winter, and rubber, scrap materials, and other things were recycled. Coffee, meat, silk, cotton, nylon, and fabric were conserved. And the two-piece bathing suit was marketed as, quote, patriotic chic. Less material on the the swimsuit was somehow better for the war effort. You can imagine who the ad wizards were that pushed that idea. Our topic today is World War II, and here to help understand this event in the second of our two-part episode on what many would call the defining event of the 20th century, our professors Robert Brown, Bruce DeHart, and James Hudson. Welcome, everybody. Thanks, Dr.
1: Frederick. Thank you, Dean Frederick. So technology
0: clearly had proven to be dramatically different in the first half of World War II than in World War I, even though the gap between the wars is only some 21 years between the end of one and the start of the other discuss briefly for us this military technology, Bruce, get us started, how was it developed and in what ways was it most successfully deployed? Well, let me start by saying that uh, when we think about the development of military technology
2: during the Second World War, uh, we, we can go in a variety of directions, and so uh, I will start at the beginning. Uh, It seems to me that the most significant technological development of the war, uh, a development that has long-term implications, uh, the atomic bombs, and uh, the bombs that were tested and employed by the United States in 1945 uh, were the byproducts of more than three years of research and development in the United States. The uh, story, however, of uh, the development of atomic bombs uh, by the United States actually began, one could argue, in August 1939, when Albert Einstein, uh, who had immigrated from Germany in 1933, and who had taken uh, a faculty position at Princeton University, was convinced by fellow immigrant scientists to sign a letter to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt informing Roosevelt that because of uh, recent developments in physics in Europe, uh, (laughs) he, Einstein, believed it would be possible to develop a new type of bomb that might be able to destroy a port. And we don't know for certain whether Roosevelt actually read the letter signed by uh, Einstein, but we do know that a number of his advisors read it, probably um, told Roosevelt about it, Roosevelt, uh, shortly thereafter, had a number of people investigate the possibilities um, mentioned in Einstein's letter. And in the summer of 1942, June 1942 specifically, uh, Roosevelt sanctioned the establishment of a highly secret project given the code name, the Manhattan Project. And over the course of the next three years, roughly 150,000 people uh, working at different locations across the United States. Uh, will develop these new unprecedented uh, weapons. Uh, I would also point out that the United States spent an estimated $2 billion on the development of the atomic bombs. The first one was tested um, in the deserts of New Mexico in July of 45, and I think as most people know, the two bombs were actually used against Japan on August the 6th and August the 9th, respectively, of 1945. The first bomb hitting Hiroshima, the second bomb hitting Nagasaki, both produced a massive amount of death and a massive amount of physical destruction. And according to the uh, statement made by Hirohito uh, in a recorded radio address to the Japanese people that was broadcast on August 15th announcing Japan's unconditional surrender, the employment of these bombs, decisive factor in his Hiruhito's, intervention in the decision making process that produced the unconditional surrender
0: so James pick up on that story what is the reaction in Japan uh, to this and were other pieces of technology air land or sea particularly important in the Pacific theater Well,
1: I think the, the one thing that bombing raid in the city of Tokyo alone, uh, 80 to 100,000 people were killed in that single event. And Especially after 1943, in the direction of uh, uh, Curtis LeMay and one of his uh, main advisors, a young officer named Robert McNamara, uh, from then on, they planned the the bombing of many cities uh, in Japan. You also have in Japan the, uh, the development, I mean, we were talking earlier about, you mentioned your opening comments, big corporations in the United States, General Motors, in Germany, Volkswagen. In Japan, it's Mitsubishi. And, and Mitsubishi is the company that built the uh, uh, A6F m 0 which becomes, especially in the early days of the war for Japan, the a, a superior fighter. It was also a long-range craft and could uh, fly great distances. And for Enabled, the, the fact that the allies could conduct an air war in support of nationalist China meant that American ground troops would not have to be committed to the China theater. And I think the, the, the use of atomic bombs, as Bruce has so eloquently pointed out, I mean, it, I think it's something we can also talk about when we, we finish up uh, at the end and talk about could the outcomes have been different.
0: So, Robert, bring us back to Europe. Uh, Talk a little bit about the technology that's used in the European theater successfully. And for any of y'all, were there some flops? Were there some technology ideas in terms of weaponry that absolutely did not work?
3: Okay. Um, I would certainly echo the comments about aircraft. They're much more sophisticated than World War I. We had the dive bomber, the key component of Germany's blitzkrieg. You know, we had the long-range bomber, which made the bombing of civilian targets like the cities of London or later in the war of Hamburg and Dresden. You know, B-17 had a range of some 2,000 miles, and it could carry a heavy bomb load. In addition to things like incendiaries, it had a sophisticated bomb site. Um, this is all something new. And, of course, it was an aircraft that delivered the out-of-bomb. areas of technology, the Germans are developing a missile, which is going to have great implications for the future for the delivery of atomic and then nuclear weapons. We also had developed in terms of technology during the war, things like electronic devices, sophisticated, not like sophisticated code machines, but code-breaking efforts. There we had early forms of computers. We had early forms of Breakup. We had early forms of sonar to fight submarines. And I don't know whether it fits your category of technology or not, but think about medicine the treatment of soldiers, treatment of the wounded, complete uh, drugs. Million casualties, much greater in World War II than in any previous war. So the, the technology really does uh, transform the nature of war in a way we are still living with.
0: Any thoughts among the group on technology ideas in terms of weaponry that did not really work as intended? Well, I guess, well, uh, well uh, the, the, the the German B ones and B twos were not particularly effective, but. Were there. And, of course, the Germans developed the first jet fighter, the MA-262,
3: which again was not particularly effective, but the potential was there. So we do have these. And then we could mention chemical weapons. All the sides had chemical weapons, but we didn't generally use them on the battlefield. But what we poison gas, and various types of poison chemicals. The chemical weapons
2: were there. Robert mentioned the sophisticated bomb site um, employed by B-17s fly fortresses. Uh, the Northern bomb site, it was the most advanced bomb site in the world. And when the United States uh, 8th Army Air Force showed up in Great Britain in 1942 with their B-17s, they were supremely confident that strategic bombing against uh, uh, Europe, against Germany and German-occupied Europe, would be extremely successful, in large part because they had such confidence in the heavily-armed B-17, but also because they, the American airmen possessed the norden bomb site. And you may have heard the story, but American uh, airmen, starting in 1942, bragged that using the norden bomb site, they could drop a single uh, bomb in a pickle barrel from 30,000. And while it certainly was an advanced bomb site, one could argue that it certainly did not produce the results uh, that the United States Army Air Force uh, uh, anticipated it, it would. And I'm not suggesting it was a flop. But what the Americans learned and what the British had already learned is that there were so many variables to strategic bombing that you could have the best bomb site available, and it might not make any difference at all. Uh, Robert mentioned. the Luftwaffe employed as a bomber, but it was a fighter. The other thing is that by the time the Germans had enough M-262s, enough jet fighters to get into the air, uh, Anglo-American strategic bombing had done such damage to the German fuel industry that there was not sufficient fuel to get a sufficient number of of them um, in in the air. A couple of additional points, you're talking about aircraft. I think we should – these long-range bombers like the American B-17 and subsequently like the American B-29 that carried the strategic bombing load in the Pacific. Uh, But we should also keep in mind that the key to achieving – the Allies achieving air superiority uh, in early 1944 was the American decision to introduce long-range fighters, specifically the P-51 Mustang which was arguably the best long-range fighter produced by anybody in the war. And the story there is that the Americans had developed the P-51, but had put an underpowered engine in it, and consequently the American Army Air Corps abandoned the P-51. The British took it, installed a much more powerful Rolls-Royce engine, and then the Americans will adopt it in early 44. It's, again is uh, really a key to the success of the strategic bombing campaign. And finally, if you look at the Battle of the Atlantic, this ongoing struggle between the German submarine fleet and the British, the American, and the Canadian navies, uh, a piece of technology that no one knows anything about that was key to the Allies gaining the upper hand in 1943 was a little device called a high-frequency uh, direction finder. The Americans. lock on to signals being sent from U-boats in the North Atlantic to the command post on the French Atlantic coast. And when this device would lock on to those signals, it would allow convoys to know in advance where German U-boats were in fact congregating. And this allowed the commanders of the convoy to switch shift the routes and it also allowed for American and British take those U-boats down and destroy them. And so this little device, about which no one knows anything at all, plays a critical role in, in the Allied victory in the Battle of the Atlantic.
0: Fascinating stuff. Uh, let's transition from soldiers, sailors, and airmen uh, working with new technology to ordinary citizens back uh, across Asia and Europe. James, get us started. What do ordinary Chinese and Japanese folks learn about what's happening in the war? What are their sources, and how accurate are they in understanding what's happening on the ground?
1: From the beginning, there's a a variety of uh, journalists from newspapers both in China and abroad reporting on the war, and a lot of the reporting that's being done about what's happening in China, especially after the United States becomes involved, is being done through uh, timeline publications and, and which uh, was headed by uh, Henry Luce. and Henry Luce is an interesting uh, story because he was uh, the son of missionaries in China and timeline publications throughout the war painted and depicted uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his wife in a very favorable light. Um, he was very, very much supportive of Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek and his wife, Madame Chiang, made the cover of I even spent a considerable amount of time embedded with, with Mao in North China, learned uh learned a lot about about him. Also, what I think is interesting about the war, in terms of uh, this this more speaks to how people in the United States are learning about the war, is that the United States government commissioned a series of films called Why We Fight. And there was one film And I know in the case of the, the movie for Japan,
0: Robert, what about from the German perspective? What do ordinary Germans know, uh, and how much accuracy do they have in their minds when they think about how the war is progressing? Okay, this is a good
3: question. because In Germany, of course, formal news was controlled by the Goebbels' propaganda ministry. Magazines like Signal that was produced for occupied countries. Ordinary Germans would see newsreels. Is what particularly important was the Deutsche Volksschau, which was the weekly news done between 1940 and 1945. These were newsreels shown before feature films, but of course they showed Germany. Soldiers came back home visits, and probably we were able to tell family members a little less restrictively what was going on. We had millions of civilians working in occupied countries, and even within Germany, a number of things, and we're going to get to the Holocaust later, but for example, roundups of Jews, they were done the Jews were assembled in public places before being put on trains and deported. It, this was hard to miss, and of course all the locations are marked these days with plaques and so forth. And further, Germany is a police state. Conversations were reported. Defeatism was defined as a crime. Listening to foreign radio broadcasts like the BBC was illegal. Um, so even if you learned something it within families or with your neighbors was, you know, highly difficult. So I suspect dollars was very fragmentary, but
0: it was there. And, and Bruce, in the Soviet Union, there is a lot of first hand evidence of what's happening since there's so much action occurring there. But what's the perspective of the average Soviet citizen? What do they know about the war?
2: Well, the Soviet Union, like Hitler's Germany, was a totalitarian dictatorship after Stalin's. The leader of the Communist Party and of the country in the late 1920s. He eliminated the, the intellectual freedoms that uh, had existed in the 1920s. He imposed harsh censorship, and the government became the source of all information even before the Soviet Union became dragged into the war. And once the Soviet Union goes to war in 1941, the peoples of the Soviet Union The government allowed them to know, and the uh, government shared information via radio, uh, via the official government and party newspapers. Undoubtedly, some information spread. battlefront
0: basically knew what the government told them let's change our perspective from what uh, citizens actually know to what they're feeling what they're actually experiencing let's uh stay in the same general areas so james get get us started what what are japanese and particularly chinese citizens feeling what is the amount of civilian suffering we'll get back to the military perspective, and of course we'll talk about the Holocaust in a minute, but the typical uh, citizen in China and Japan, what are they feeling and experiencing as the wars drag on?
1: Well, I mean, from the Japanese side, I think it's, it should be fair to say that, that even in the 1930s, there were there was people in the slave coastal
0: Soviet citizens feeling, what are they experiencing as the war drags on? Depends on where you are in the Soviet
2: Union. Um, if, if in fact you were in those uh, portions of the Western Soviet Union, uh, conquered and occupied by the Germans, you faced extremely difficult conditions, you were exploited, you were starved, you were subject to being shot uh, after having been accused of partisan or guerrilla activities, You were also scripted by by German needs and German policies. In other parts of the Soviet Union uh, people live very very difficult lives but the the, the thing about the Soviet war effort is that the, the citizens of the Soviet Union are willing to pay the price Food in some cases. They obviously don't have access to what we would consider consumer goods. And and, and so the experience of the Soviet citizen again does, in fact, depend on what part of the Soviet Union you were in from 1941 on. One thing I would add to this is that there are those in the occupied part of the Soviet Union who, in fact, welcome the Germans.
0: and help them perpetrate all sorts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Uh, to Bruce's point, uh, yeah, the Soviet Union, uh, Germany, China, Japan, obviously large countries in uh, what would be uh, experienced in, in one place might be different elsewhere. Robert, pick up our story, um, and obviously given the size of Germany, what Bruce has just pointed out is true, but maybe contrast what the ordinary German is experiencing and feeling say, 39, 40, 41, versus certainly by mid to late 44 and into early 45?
3: Okay. I think that the point is well taken. It depends on where you are. Um, If you were in a major city, the bombing was, particularly after about 1943, a fact of daily life. Luxembourg, which is about 15 minutes by train away, uh, was not bombed at all, or minimally bombed. So you could see the difference, and Luxembourg had a very different, ex- the citizens of Ludwigsburg had a very different experience of the war. Uh, now, in the cities, particularly the major ones, Dresden, Hamburg, Berlin, where the bombing night today by the americans and the british the power came back on if they could make it they got urban transportation working again if they could the water was back on schools were open and i can give the example of my mother-in-law she completed her teaching degree at the university of berlin in the middle of the war and was teaching toward the end of the war and the schools were open right until probably late 1944 or so And then right after the war was over, they were open again. Bombed out residents. And she gives the example. She was at school at the University of Berlin and was bombed. Um, when she tried to go home. She couldn't even find the street where she lived. But the you know, the Nazis found
0: Fascinating uh, insights there. Um, well, let's get back into the battlefield and, and away from the civilians. Each of you discuss a battle or a campaign, or a military or economic development that you might rightly call a turning point, and you can pick whichever theater of war you want. What starts to make the outcome pretty much no longer in doubt? I think from the
1: outset, what you have to minutes lit by now. No. was effective um, in, in many respects, but it also, I think, uh, undermined uh, morale in terms of, you know, the public's uh, general support of Chiang Kai-shek, but one thing that Chiang Kai-shek had going for him was the influence of his wife, and I wanted to mention uh, her just briefly and just talk about her significance, because she was a really key uh, work.
3: in mind that on the Eastern Front, particularly the Russian front, two thirds of the German forces are committed there. And so there's a debate over whether the defeat in Stalingrad is a military, is a military turning point, but I think for many it may have been a psychological turning point because the news does get back about the surrender of Rampalos and the German six Again, the machine has to go into full gear to explain what happened at Stalingrad. The second point we make is: you know, Americans have the widespread belief that D-Day, June 6, 1944, is the turning point. But quite honestly, I think that by that point, the the, the war was lost to the Germans. It may have been lost earlier, I think. Ruth mentioned earlier uh, in our previous podcast, but the fact that the advances coming from the east was well underway by the time the Allies landed on the Normandy beaches, and further, the, the Allies were in Rome in June of 1944. So Germany, June 1944, is being squeezed from the east, from the west, and from the
2: Mission is Overwhelm them. Uh, The second potential turning point is the one that Robert pointed to the Battle of Stalingrad. And I think uh, the consensus among historians of the war on the Eastern Front, and in fact, many historians of the war in Europe. the German perspective was much more psychological than military. And, and so I would actually argue that, that the turning point of the war on the Eastern Front, the point at which the military initiative shifted irreversibly came in July 1943, when the Germans launched their and
0: And diplomatic historians whose primary uh, focus is American history might argue that even if D-Day didn't prove to be a decisive military turning point, even if the Soviets were already well on their way to pounding the Germans back from the east to the west, that the American foothold on the coast of France started the process of changing the post-war order because as Americans race into Germany, from the west to the east, it allows them to claim a mantle of helping to decide uh, the post-World uh, War II order, which, of course, eventually at some point in time will lead to the Cold War as well.
2: Now, let me just say that, uh, that the success of the Americans, the British, and the Canadians – don't forget the Canadians – the success in making, across the, making it across the channel, establishing beachheads. And his confidence was based on his sincere belief that when the Americans and the British crossed the Channel, the Germans would defeat that invasion, which would... Canadians succeed in getting
1: across the channel, Hitler's plans for
0: the future are completely wrecked. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu/give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. You're listening to 30 Brave Minutes, a broadcast service of the College of Arts and Sciences at UNC Pembroke. I'm Jeff Frederick talking about the second world war and our panel includes bruce Dehart, james hudson and robert brown in, in part one of our podcast i ask you to note something about the first half of the war that most folks did not know in the same vein perhaps discuss a battle or a military development that you think is underappreciated or for those of us that are non-scholars of the war might not know much about bruce get us started
2: two battles about which most Americans don't know, Uh, bitter engagements, one at the small town of Memphis, the other at the small town of Kohima. The British 14th Army uh, defeated the invasion and proceeded to inflict on the Japanese the single worst defeat that the Japanese Army suffered in all of World War II. Uh, The British 14th Army completely annihilated Japanese will conduct very successful operations in China that will allow them not only to do tremendous damage to Shanghai Shet's military forces, which will have implications for the post war period and the uh, renewed civil war against the communists, but these particular operations will result in the Japanese capturing a series of American aircraft. German invasion, but this operation had been coordinated with the Americans and the British when Stalin met with uh, Churchill and Roosevelt at the Tehran Conference in November, early December, 1943. He promised Roosevelt and Churchill that once the British and the Americans established that second front in Western Europe, by crossing the Channel, the Red Army would launch a massive offensive on the Eastern Front to prevent Uh, 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 British and American
0: forces in the last. Robert, your thoughts. Uh, an underappreciated or little known battle or military development? Well, I think it's not quite military development, but there are two things I'd like to
3: mention. Uh, one is the g- resistance movements within Germany um, to the Nazis, which were relatively small, Fairly widespread, and they culminate for most of us in the July of 1944 bomb plot to kill Hitler. But I think what many people don't realize in the aftermath of the bomb plot. The various plotters, including um, Colonel Stauffenberg, who gets a lot of press in the United States because of recent movies. but the Nazi reaction to the bomb plot was basically to arrest and decimate the resistance. And there are some scholars argue that, in the act of uh, the, the resistance was essentially eliminated, and it actually may have prolonged the war. Uh, and that was simply one point, and I think Bruce could elaborate on that if you'd like. The second thing I would mention is When the war ends in May of 1945 in Europe and then in August and September of 1945 in Asia the whole foundation for the Cold War which begins probably before the war uh, the military part of the war probably ended is already
0: later James tell us something we don't know uh, what's underappreciated or little known about uh, but critical in the Pacific
1: I, I think there. are The other thing that I think people have to have. I'm
0: As we think about atrocities, we're reminded that we have assessed the Holocaust in a previous podcast, and I would invite our listeners to uh, check that out and get a tremendous amount of insight and detail uh, from Bruce DeHart about the Holocaust, from Mein Kampf to the Nuremberg Laws to Kristallnacht to the Final Solution, the inhumanity uh, just continued to escalate from anti-semitism, perhaps on a personal or individual level, through a series of ongoing policies and beliefs, all the way into institutionalized national actions with horrific uh, end costs. Bruce and Robert, was this humanity's darkest moment?
3: vast number of Jews who died in Holocaust came from Eastern Europe, from Poland, Ukraine, and places like that. But in, in context, we need to remember that the Nazi fault was also on people who were chronically ill, and mentally retarded, what they considered as antisocial elements, Gypsies, um, homosexuals. Of other people, including Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were all persecuted. They were, in many cases, deported. In many cases, murdered. sanction and encourage the persecution of groups within the
2: heels Attempt to eradicate the Jewish people, and I don't believe that there has been anything like it since. Uh, we, we, we should keep in mind that, that from 1941, um, when the Hitler regime implemented uh, what Hitler and his associates Jewish population, not just of Europe, but of the globe, um, I mean, they are committed to killing in one manner or another every single Jew, and while other groups were certainly targeted by the Nazi regime, jehovahs witnesses, homosexuals, um, asocials, um, non-Jewish Poles, Soviet POWs, uh, sentient Roma, otherwise known as Go through the whole list. Uh, there is no evidence to suggest that this regime set out to kill every member of those targeted groups. So there was no final solution of the gypsy question, or no final solution of the homosexual question. And so again, I don't think there had ever been anything like this in global history, and I don't think that there has been anything like it since. Whether it was humanity's dark judgment, but
0: again, I think it's unprecedented. Well, let's discuss the end of the war. And we have uh, run-up against this with our discussion of turning points or underrepresented or little discussed uh, developments, military or otherwise, that affected the outcome. We know with certitude that the Japanese and the Germans lost the war. We, we know that they lost the actual war that was fought and concluded in 1945. And, of course, the world is, is much better for this outcome. Much of the story of the 75 years of history since the war has been the relative empowerment of ordinary citizens in many areas of the world. Not, not complete, but, but relative. Is it possible, though, is it conceivable that there are some basic, not, not outlandish, but basic alterations of the strategy or the action or the scope that could have led to a different result in the Second World War. How, how far-fetched is this? James, get us started. Well, I think going-
1: wrote a piece in the Atlantic where he articulated and justified the reason for the dropping of the bombs that it would that it ultimately save
0: was a different outcome conceivable was it possible
2: well looking war from, say, the perspective of late 41 and early 42, and you're looking at it from the perspective of the Soviets or the British or the Americans or the Canadians, you're not so sure how this war is going to turn out. Uh, In fact, you're not terribly optimistic. And this is true even of people – the leadership of the Soviet Union after Barbarossa has been defeated. in retrospect. Um, I don't think that there's any way that the Axis could have won the war uh, un- unless there had been some sort of um, technological miracle um, that, that, that would have been possible for the time. But I think the way to look at the war is to look at the war from the perspective of the
1: time when it unfolded. I think that's a great... Uh,
0: Robert, thoughts from you. Uh, was a different outcome uh, possible, conceivable?
3: I think what what if we look at to the point of you know the people. And I think that's an excellent point. Is people celebrated D-Day in 1945 or the DJ Day in 1945? They thought the war ended, but in fact didn't. You know it war. particularly in America, people had anticipated. They thought the war was over, we defeated the Nazis, we defeated totalitarianism, we defeated the Japanese, the boys are going to come home, and we're going to have a post-war world. Well, it didn't happen that way. Uh, and they didn't anticipate it. Plus, in 1945, what is the state? You And then one final point that I'd like to bring up um, is the culture of... But there really has been a culture of remembrance there, of remembering the Holocaust, remembering the persecution of other groups like the gypsies, the Roma, the, the homosexuals, the mentally, physically handicapped. And today, if you go to Germany, there are memorials, and we could talk about the different kinds. There are museums, the curriculum of the school is constantly talking about how the current generation should look back on the period of the Second World War and the Nazi
0: regime. Well, Robert, you've you've definitely transitioned this beautifully into some final comments by thinking about the outcome and the aftermath. James and Bruce, why don't you add something, final comments into a, a a brief summary of a topic that we've already talked about for a couple of hours and haven't barely scratched the surface of its overall meaning in terms of uh, origins, outcomes, uh, the causes and effects but but tie a ribbon on this for us, Bruce and James what what should we take away from the overall meaning of this horrific conflict I-
1: It continues to be uh, a source of, uh, you know, remembrance and controversy uh, to this day. Obviously, the Antique Massacre, which I talked about in Part 1, continues to be remembered and continues to uh, stroke uh, sensitive veins in China, especially when there are textbooks that have been published in Japan in very recent years that amid all rep- Oh. Effects of that are still being felt to this day. Um, and the other thing I wanted to just finish up with saying is, is that you know the end of the war, I think was I think the Allies, by the creation of organizations like NATO, wanted. To do well to uh, continue to look back on these wars and and, and learn, continue to learn from them uh, in that regard. Bruce, finish this off.
2: Well, what I would like people to understand is that in the early 1940s, the world hung in the balance. One of the most significant points that we could make about Winston Churchill That the First World War was really an unnecessary war. Uh, for, for the Allies, for those who fought against the Third Reich and Japan and Italy and Romania and Slovakia and all those others who hitched their wagons to the Nazi horse, for the Allies, this was a war that not only had to be fought, but for the sake of the world and for the sake of civilization, it had to be won. Because, having
0: For all of our listeners, uh, I want to offer thanks to this tremendous panel who in two separate sessions has demonstrated a master class of historians at their work. Command of the material, the depth of insight and analysis, the level of interpretation and understanding of how different pieces fit together. We are all enriched by your conversation and by your insight most important of wars, which we are continuing to feel even today. Thank you to our tremendous panel. Thank you to Richard for putting all this together. Join us again next time for another edition of 30 Great Minutes. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis, theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs schools departments or divisions while reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release neither uncp nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research technology or industry standards thanks for listening and go braves good job everybody